It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We do have now a um, more serious discussion about Moldova's capacity to defend itself. I should say that the uh, Russian propaganda managed to convince part of the population that neutrality means that you don't have to invest in the, your defense sector, that neutrality means you do nothing and you have no capacity to defend yourself, which is wrong. So now there is a serious discussion in the society about our capacity to defend ourselves, whether we can do it ourselves or whether we should be part of a, a larger alliance. Maya Sandu is the president of Moldova, a small nation on the front line of Russia's war in Ukraine. Like many in the region, Moldova hopes to join the EU one day. But the Russian invasion is opening up difficult questions for the country, including whether it should join a defence alliance, something that Moscow has warned against. I'm Suzanne Lynch, Politico's chief Brussels correspondent. Later in the episode, you'll hear from President Sandu about her country's challenges due to Russia's war in Ukraine and how plans are going for the second meeting of the European political community, which is due to take place in Moldova's capital of Kisnyau in June. And we'll get to know more about how the Harvard-educated anti-corruption campaigner ended up as president of her country. But first, Ukraine remains top of the agenda here in Brussels. A large group of European commissioners are travelling to Kyiv this week, and on Friday, the EU-Ukraine summit takes place in Kyiv. That will include European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, the EU's foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell, and Charles Michel, the European Council President. They'll be meeting with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and members of his government. To discuss what the EU is hoping to achieve from this visit, we're joined today by Veronika Melkozarova, our colleague based in Kyiv, and Matthew Kernichnik, our Chief Europe Correspondent. So, hi Veronica, welcome to Politico, uh, welcome to the podcast and thanks so much for joining us. I'm going to Kiev myself later this week uh, for that EU summit. But in the meantime, could you describe a bit about what the atmosphere is like in the Ukrainian capital? We have talk of maybe a spring offensive by Russia. Give us a flavour of what it's like to be in Ukraine at this moment. 
well, we are still suffering from power outages uh, connected to Russia bombing our energy infrastructure for several months already. Just yesterday we had three air alert sirens uh, only in the morning. Uh, and also people here are all waiting for a possible offensive, which might come even earlier than spring, because Russia likes huge dates uh, and uh, anniversaries, and February is the month when the full-scale invasion started. So kind of people are a little bit, not scared, I would say, but uh, exhausted and uh, waiting for Russia to start offensive again in February. So kind of hard and full of tension. So, Veronica, what about this big visit by the European Commission this week and the EU summit on Friday? Are there a lot of expectations around this? Actually, I think that our government is very keen to get us into the European Union earlier than it is actually possible. They keep saying that we're on our right track, we are on a fast track, we already fulfilled all of the steps. So Ukrainians, uh, on one hand, are hopeful. Uh, On the other hand, like those who are a little bit deeper in the topic, they are seeing uh, government's uh, ongoing plans to join you pretty fast uh, in an ironic way because we still have problems with uh, anti-corruption strategy that is not yet adopted, fully-fledged. We still have a lot of problems with the national minorities uh, legislation. We are still not uh, at the end of the court reform. So I guess that people, of course, are waiting for very good news to happen, but it seems that it is a naive expectation. Yes. I mean, I did an interview myself earlier this week with the Ukrainian Prime Minister, Denis Shmihal, ahead of this summit, and he said that he expects Ukraine to join the EU within two years. I I mean, I think it's safe to say that that is not going to happen, I would say. Now, nobody in the Commission is going to say that publicly, but, you know, there are steps you have to go through. There are some underlying concerns in Brussels about Ukraine's readiness to join the EU, even though they want to give a positive signal, they want to support Ukraine. They admire Ukraine. They see Ukraine as part of Europe. The reality of them joining the EU anytime soon, I think, is still remote. And one of the reasons is corruption. You mentioned there that even before Zelensky became president, Ukraine had an issue with corruption. We saw in the last few weeks a flurry of activity whereby Zelensky announced the firing of people about corruption. Tell us a bit more about that, Veronica. It is actually very interesting because of this summit, uh, Ukrainians are joking that uh, there are so many firings and uh, so many searches in Ukraine. Uh, maybe we need like a EU-Ukraine summit every week to keep going with the same speed in the fight against corruption. So it was last week uh, when uh, we discovered that uh, our defense officials uh, have been trying to buy catering services for Ukrainian soldiers at inflated prices. And also Deputy Infrastructure Minister being caught getting $400,000 bribe for facilitating another uh, purchase at an inflated prices, but this time generators, uh, which are crucial for us now that we have power outages in winter, just like I have now. Uh, in my apartment. And another scandal was uh, connected to deputy head of Zelensky's office himself, uh, Kirill Timoshenko, who got caught using 
cars uh, that are were provided by our partners again as a humanitarian aid uh, for his own purpose he was using the very luxurious car which was not owned by him another scandal was uh, about ukrainian officials getting lavish vacations abroad while everyone else in ukraine is only dreaming about vacations especially the vacations in like spain or monaco or other wonderful places uh, Zelensky, who doesn't have time for any vacations himself, got pretty infuriated on the lawmakers and he banned them from going abroad uh, on any occasion other than a working trip. Yeah, so reaction this time was pretty fast and unusual for the Ukrainian government. So yes, that's why people are joking that we have to have like EU-Ukraine summits every week right now. Because what is going on with such a progress in such a short-term period is fascinating. Yeah, very interesting that Zelensky is kind of moving to address these corruption issues. It's been a big issue in the US, for example. The Biden administration has made it clear that they want to see reforms if they're going to continue to provide arms, provide money, etc. I mean, Matt, turning to you, look, it's a big moment for the EU. It's probably the first summit that's taken place in an active war zone. So I suppose I shouldn't be too cynical about the prospects of Ukraine's EU membership. And We will probably see some announcements uh, during uh, the end of this week. For example, agreements between the EU and Ukraine on things like roaming, on customs-free access for goods, those kind of things. But really, in terms of Ukraine joining the EU, I mean, what's your sense about what the summit can achieve, Matt? Well, I think at the most it can achieve, you know, a bit more good feeling towards Ukraine. It can remind people in Europe that the war is still going on and that Ukraine is going to continue to need European help. There is some low-hanging fruit there, as you pointed out, about things that they can agree on moving Ukraine slowly towards membership. But I think that we all know that this is going to take many, many years, if not longer, before Ukraine becomes a, a member of the EU. But if you look at the past integration of countries, it has taken much longer in most cases than people had anticipated or wanted, especially the countries who were joining. And you need only look at the situation in the Balkans to see that playing out in real time. Yeah, absolutely. Serbia and these countries that are on the outside, we're going to hear from the Moldovan president later in the program. They've been given the first kind of green light, but it's still some time away. You're absolutely right. But as you say, it is important symbolically that the EU shows support for Ukraine at this time. It will be, the visuals of this will be very, very powerful. Zelensky standing beside these leaders of the EU. So very important. But of course, what Ukraine really wants is more military help. Matt, I mean, we were talking last week on the podcast about that historic decision by Germany to send tanks, but the conversation has already moved on. It sounds like the next thing on the agenda for Ukraine is fighter jets. That's what they're looking for now from the West. That's right. Fighter jets and better artillery and all kinds of other gear. I spoke this week with the Deputy Foreign Minister Andrei Melnik, who used to be the ambassador for Ukraine in Germany, who became something of a household name in Germany for nudging and some would say offending the Germans into sending more weapons. And he was one of the first to say after the tank announcement, well, we also 
need jets now. And I think that the Ukrainians really want to get this debate rolling because they know how long it takes for Western countries to come around on these decisions. And he pointed out that the war is far from over. They're lacking equipment on all fronts, basically. And in order to win back the territory they've lost to the Russians and push the Russians back to their own borders, which remains Ukraine's goal, they need air support. They need fighter aircraft. And that's going to be a pretty hard ask, I think, particularly in Germany again. The good news for the Ukrainians here, though, is that the Germans aren't the main suppliers or owners of fighter jets in Europe. There are plenty of other countries who have them. And that was the dynamic with the tanks where Germany could really use its its veto there on the Leopard tanks, which are manufactured in Germany. And the government needed to give its approval for the re-export of those tanks. That's not the case with fighter jets, although it also has to be said that uh, NATO up to now has tried to achieve unanimity on these big decisions when it comes to supplying arms. We've seen Poland again come out saying they're ready to supply Ukraine with fighter jets, but the U.S. is also a bit more cautious, especially when it comes to the American-made F-16s. Yeah, it's interesting that President Joe Biden was asked about this by reporters and said no to fighter jets. Olaf Scholz again was out, I think, last Sunday at the weekend, also ruling it out. But the French defence minister did, you know, suggest it's not taboo. So I suppose the question is, are we at the start of a huge conversation about sending fighter jets that may ultimately result in fighter jets going there, uh, but we're still some way off? Or is it really a no-no? I mean, this is probably going to be a huge source of debate in the coming months. And no doubt Zelensky will talk about this during his, his meetings with EU officials later this week. Matt, on the tanks issue, you know, as you pointed out, it's a very good point there that the same pressure maybe is not on Germany this time, on the jets as it was with the tanks. But do you think they still want to bring the US along or indeed... Is anything going to happen unless the U.S. says yes in terms of fighter jets? Well, I think it's important to remember that the U.S. has already spent about $30 billion on military aid for Ukraine, which is 10 times, more than 10 times, in fact, what Germany has has spent, for example. So there's a huge gulf here between what the U.S. has spent and what the Europeans have spent. And I think part of what is happening here is that the U.S. is kind of trying to push the Europeans to do more and say, you know, we have other issues we have to worry about around the world. There's a lot of concern about Taiwan at the moment, obviously. And this war is getting very expensive for us, and they want the Europeans to step up, which they really haven't seen to the degree they would like so far. And it's also worth remembering, I think, from an American perspective, people would say, well, who has really, you know, most to lose here? It's the Western Europeans if Ukraine doesn't succeed here. And I think this is obviously what's driving these arms deliveries, because People can see that if you do supply the Ukrainians, they are able to defend themselves and they're able to succeed. And it's pretty extraordinary when you think of where we were at this time last year and the reluctance to even send artillery to Ukraine. And now we're talking seriously about sending fighter jets. But in terms of the U.S. involvement, the dynamic there with Germany in particular is, is really interesting because I think that the Germans have been very skeptical, at least parts of the German political landscape, in particular the Social Democratic Party, 
to which Chancellor Schultz belongs, about the true commitment of the United States to defend Europe. And this goes back to the Cold War, where there was concern that if there was a Soviet attack, that the U.S. might not actually be there to help Germany. And so the argument in Berlin has been, we need to have the Americans with us on all of these decisions every step of the way, because they believe, or at least in the chancellery, they're arguing that only if the United States is involved can we guarantee that the U.S. will defend Europe if there is escalation and if the Russians attack us. And I think that's a, a really interesting revelation over the past few days here, that that was central to Olaf Scholz's thinking, apparently, was not so much that he wants Abrams tanks from the U.S. in order to help Ukraine, but in his mind, if the U.S. sends this gear, if it is directly involved alongside Germany and the other European powers, it increases the likelihood that the U.S. would launch a counterstrike if Russia attacked. I think that logic is it's questionable because I think the U.S. would live up to its commitments under Article 5 of the NATO treaty, which calls on countries that belong to the alliance to come to the aid of another if there is an attack. But it is very revealing, I think, in terms of of Schultz's thinking and mentality. Fascinating. That's a, that's a really interesting argument. On the tanks, just finally, Matt, I mean, is there any update? We spoke about this last week. It's a huge potential turning point of this war, but no sign of tanks coming anytime soon. I mean, is there any update on when these tanks might arrive? Well, I think there's hope that the first lepers can arrive this spring, probably March at the earliest. The American tanks are going to take much, much longer, could take as long as two years is, is what we're, we're hearing out of the U.S. Those tanks have to be sandblasted. They have to be completely refurbished and outfitted before they're sent over here. And that, again, just shows, I think, the symbolic nature of the American involvement here. And there's still, I think, resistance in the U.S. to sending more than the 30 Abrams tanks that they've agreed to for various reasons. But uh, I think that, you know, the best case scenario for the Ukrainians is that they could see the first leopards by March, which if there is a Russian spring offensive would, would certainly come in handy. OK, thanks for that update, Matt. And thanks also to Veronica. No doubt we will be coming back to this topic over the next few weeks and months. Do stay with us because we'll introduce you to Maya Sandu, the president of Moldova, right after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Moldova is an Eastern European country which sits between the southern border of Ukraine and Romania. According to the United Nations Development Programme, Moldova is hosting the highest number of Ukrainian refugees per capita compared to other EU and EU neighbouring countries. We caught up with the country's president, Maya Sandu, during her recent visit to the World Economic Forum. Obviously, the war in Ukraine is a huge theme here this week. What specific threats are you guys in Moldova experiencing? Well, thanks to the Ukrainians' courage and resistance, we're not facing military threats as of now. Uh, We have to deal with all kind of hybrid war threats. And this is, of course, the propaganda and the disinformation. This is the energy crisis which Russia is using against Moldova as it is trying to use against many other countries. It's the frozen conflict that we have uh, in the Transnistrian region, even though we have managed to keep the situation stable so far, and we will continue to do whatever it takes to maintain uh, peace and stability. Of course, the economic impact of the war is also big on Moldova. Russia has been trying to support some corrupt groups and some political groups in Moldova to destabilize the situation. So we're facing a range of risks, but none of it compares to the situation in Ukraine and and to the price that Ukrainians are paying. What about your position on NATO? Is it a possibility that Moldova might join the alliance? You know that Moldova is a neutral country. This is what our constitution says. And any changes to the neutrality, to the constitution, need to be supported by the people. This is the the democratic principle of making changes and of changing the decisions. We do have now a more serious discussion about Moldova's capacity to defend itself. I should say that the uh, Russian propaganda managed to convince part of the population that neutrality means that you don't have to invest in the, your defense sector, that neutrality means you do nothing and you have no capacity to defend yourself, which is wrong. So now there is a serious discussion in the society about our capacity to defend ourselves, whether we can do it ourselves or whether we should be part of a, a larger alliance. And again, if we come at some point to the conclusion as the nation that we need to change the neutrality, this should happen through a democratic process. So you would have a referendum, for example, is that's what needed? We might have a referendum at some point, but we are at the beginning of the discussion. Uh, but at least we are changing the policy of the government. Uh, we are investing in our defense sector which hasn't been done, unfortunately, in the last few decades. What would you say to Russia's criticism or Russia's concerns that it would be provocative in some way for Moldova to pursue further relations with NATO? Moldova is a peaceful country. It's not Moldova which started a war against its neighbours. We didn't believe that there is going to be a war or can be. we can see a war in our region, on our continent, 
But now that we see the Russian aggression in Ukraine, we understand how serious this is and we understand that we need to make the defense sector a priority and we will invest in our defense sector because we want to be able to maintain, to provide security to our own people. June the 1st is going to be an important date for your country. The European political community will meet for the second time in the capital of Moldova, Chisinau. How are preparations going for this event and what do you expect from it? It's uh, an opportunity for us, of course, and and it's an honor for us to uh, be able to host such a big event. And it is a bit challenging. It's for the first time that Moldova is organizing since its independence that Moldova is organizing such an important event. But I'm sure that we will be able to organize it good enough. We do believe that the two big topics of discussions will be, of course, the security and the war in Ukraine and the need to help Ukraine, but also the energy crisis. But then we are also consulting now all the countries invited to participate on other topics they might want us to touch upon. So your own bid for EU membership, is Moldova confident that it will eventually join the EU? Joining the EU is our only option to survive as a democracy. So... It's a must for us. We do believe in democracy. We want to stay part of the free world. I do believe Europe needs all the democracies or the more democracies on the continent, the better for Europe. So I think it's beneficial both, first of all, for us, but also for the European Union to have Moldova join and, of course, to have Ukraine join the EU. And we will do everything that's needed to be able to move to the next phases of the EU integration. When do you think that might happen? I don't um, uh, say exactly when this happens, but given the geopolitical situation in our region, and I don't expect it to become easier in the near future, so given the situation, we'll have to move fast. Again, because the EU integration is our chance to survive as a democracy. What kind of milestones are you being expected to pursue? Well, there are, of course, many things we have to do. The main area of reform for us and for the EU and its relations uh, with us is the um, uh, justice sector reform and the anti-corruption. And this is the main priority for us. So the idea of the European political community, it was proposed by President Emmanuel Macron last year, and it's this idea of a greater community of European countries outside the EU. But are you worried that this may become an alternative to EU membership and that actually it might delay the whole accession process for you? No, I'm not worried because this was uh, explained very clearly from the beginning that this is not an alternative. It's not about EU it's a platform where uh, the leaders of all the countries can speak about actual problems, emergency issues, and so on. And, and I can give you an example. At the first meeting, I just had the occasion to tell everyone how bad the energy crisis was in Moldova and how bad was the impact of the growing gas prices and electricity prices were for our population. And then, thanks to this discussion, probably, and thanks to some of the measures, we received some support so that we could help the people with low incomes so that they could afford heating and electricity during the winter. And at the same time, we saw some of these prices going down. So 
this was a very important discussion for me to have and to be heard by so many people at the same time. So your own political journey, can you tell us a bit more about why and how you entered politics and about your background? In uh, 2012, I was invited to take the responsibility for the Ministry of Education. I wasn't exactly coming from the education sector, but I always believed that education is the most important area and that it deserves all the attention. So during my uh, three years in the Ministry of Education, I implemented many reforms, but the one which was appreciated most by the people was the reform which led to fighting corruption and reducing the informal payments and the bribes paid in education. So while the country was discovering that huge corruption schemes were happening, they saw me as the only one who knew how to fight corruption and who wanted to fight corruption. So there was public demand for the change in the political class And this is when I decided, together with some colleagues, to create a political party and to prove to people that you can have honest politicians, to prove to people that you can have a political party which is financed transparently and legally from small donations coming from those people who support the agenda of the party. I did participate in several election campaigns in the presidential elections in 2016, which we believe was not fair, but um, I did receive officially 48%, and this made me continue the fight. And then we managed to take out from the power a very corrupt regime in 2019. And then in 2020, I managed to win the presidential elections. Thank you very much, President, for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for this episode of EU Confidential. Please do follow the podcast wherever you're listening so that you never miss an episode. If you have ideas for guests or topics or just want to send us some feedback, you can email our team at podcast at politico.eu. Today's episode was produced by our executive producer for audio, Christina Gonzalez. And a special thanks to Anna Fota for her assistance with this week's episode and to our editor, James Randerson. I'm Suzanne Lynch. See you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. Mm. 